the attack came about this time of year, 1950. That's 37 years ago. Um, middle of the winter. Were American forces actually, they were completely surrounded at one point, were, were they not? Yes. How long did the campaign last altogether before the, you before you finally got out? The, the Chosin portion of it, uh, understand when we, we got up to the reservoir and, and more or less established the entire supply route, so on and so forth, and under General uh, Smith. Uh, MacArthur ordered the units at Hager, at Udamnee to advance the last 50 miles to the, to the Yela River. On that day, when he gave that order, and it was, was started to be carried out, that's when the Chinese hit. That was about November the 27th. Mm-hmm. And the campaign, uh, that is all the actions that took place until the division got back down to the, to the coast and boarded ship, was about December 15. So within that time frame, uh, all this activity took place. No, roughly November 27th through about December 15. Pretty constant fighting all that time? Almost continually. Uh, and uh, when you weren't in actual uh, combat as such, I mean, when they were really attacking and, and, and so on and so forth, uh, then it was a continuous harassing fire, uh, sniper fire, this sort of thing. There were so many of them, uh, you realize it, and we were totally surrounded. We were totally surrounded all the way out. Uh, anytime we got to a roadblock uh, and the, and the, the uh, column, a truck column, that was bringing the dead and the wounded and our equipment out, uh, when it may, had to stop, then, and then they took advantage of that time to, to harass the, the, the trucks. Many, many, many people were, were killed on the trucks. Uh, wounded, some of them been wounded two and three times, and, and then they get on the truck to come out and they get wounded again while they were on the truck. So uh, it was a continual uh, battle, and the only difference was in the intensity of it. Yeah. I don't know what they thought that Red Cross on those ambulances were, but they, the I think they thought they were a target, because I've got pictures of some of them that just riddled completely apart, and the trucks around them were not as badly hit as the ambulance. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but, uh, you know, when we first got uh, surrounded there, old Chesty Puller was probably the most, most decorated Marine there ever was. He had, like, five net, uh, uh, Navy crosses. He said, oh, I feel sorry for those guys. He said, now we can shoot in any direction and hit one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Now they've got us right where we want them. Yeah, that's right. That's about the way it was. That's about the way it was. Hello, <laughs> A.W.? Yeah, Olin. Yes. How you doing? Fine, how are you? Pretty good, how's you think? It's great. Well, I got a uh, question for him. I just turned on the radio. Uh, did, can they describe what a mass unit was like? You know, I grew up watching mass. I was curious as to what they were actually like. Yeah, what was one really like? Did you ever get to... Get a mass unit? Yeah. I'll hang up and listen. All right, thanks. Uh, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Actually, I, n- I never got to a mass unit. Uh, my feet were frozen, but I walked all the 70 miles out, and uh, I, ne- I never stopped. I never, I never. Well, they probably didn't have a mass unit up there, did they? No, we had we had the navy. Well, see, the navy furnished our hospital facilities, and we did have one there at Udam Knee. And our corpsman, it was so cold he had to carry the the morphine in his mouth that freeze, 
and uh, he had to carry those cigarettes in his mouth so that they would stay unfrozen, and, and he would give you a shot with them. And, and I can't say enough about the corpsmen. Our, ours were all gone right quick because they would go out in front of the lines or wherever to, to aid the men. But uh, then they'd get them down to the, to the aid station, and they had these tents, but before long they wouldn't all fit in the tent, so they'd put them in a sleeping bag. You couldn't move around. You know, if you were, if you were wounded, you couldn't move around, and, and a lot of them froze. They just uh, would get down there and have to stay still, and, and that would be the end of it. Mm-hmm. And on the way out, we've got pictures of these guys on the trucks and tied on the artillery pieces and all sorts of things. We, we brought our dead out with us, and uh, you didn't know who was alive or who was dead, really, yeah. in those trucks. So the uh, the medics, uh, the uh, doctors that were up there and so forth, they, they were incredible people. They, uh, I'd say they exposed themselves as much or more than, than, the, than the guys in the front line. And again, being surrounded, uh, a tent was a good target. And uh, a lot of the tents were just shot all to pieces. They just riddled with bullet holes and guys would get killed uh, in, in the tents. Uh, this sort of thing. Uh, uh, the, yeah, the corpsmen and, and uh, all the doctors up there, they, they were just absolutely super people. Yeah. And again, as Emmett says, uh, our, our, all of our uh, medical people are Navy. The, right. the Navy corpsmen are assigned to the Marine Corps, and then they had the naval uh, units up there. And as he said, they did set up one unit up there at, uh, for example, at uh, Hagaru. They had a unit set up there, and this uh, old 14, 15 miles up there to Udamne, by the time the 5th and 7th regiments had fought their way back down the little ox trail, and uh, we joined them at, uh, at Tocktone Pass there. And uh, we brought our dead down and, and uh, our wounded and put them on the trucks. And when we got into uh, Udam Neve, I mean, excuse me, Hagaru, then uh, the Navy again took these people over and they processed them as rapidly as they could. And, and another kind of unique thing about this operation was that we, uh, the, the Marine Corps under General Smith, had cut this little runway up there, which was roughly 2,000 feet. They had cut a runway, and it was frozen. I mean, it was frozen just as slick as anybody's glass ever was. And we had uh, volunteer pilots bringing in aircraft, and they'd land on that 2,000-foot strip. Now, understand, this is about 5,000-foot elevation, 2,000 feet long, and they were landing old C-47s, old Goonie Birds, old, old <laughs> this sort of thing. But they, that was exciting. It was. Those boys, you talk about guts, they'd come in, they'd bring ammunition and supplies in and dump that out and then put stretcher cases, the worst. And again, this is where the hospital people, they would sort out the most critical cases and they had priority and they, these old boys would fly them out. And a little unique thing along there, incidentally, Mr. Paul, uh, Colonel Paul Fritz, who's retired now, and, and he's living here in Austin now, bless his heart, he was one of those guys that was flying those old C-47s off that frozen ice up there. But there was one fella flying a C-54. Now, if you all remember your old airliners, your old four-engine piston engine jobs, you know, used to come in out here at Miller. There was one fella heard over the radio when they called for any available aircraft to go fly in up there and fly out wounded. And they didn't specify the type of aircraft. Well, he had just asked his crew, he said, how about it? And they said, let's go. And they diverted their flight plan. They went in, and they landed this four-engine thing on that on that ice. They loaded up wounded. They went down, taxied down, an extremely rough old piece of ground, down to the end of the runway as it was, and he gave it all it had. And when he went over the ridge coming out, he had about 30-foot clearance. 
So his old props were just about nipping the treetops. Was it an airliner? <laughs> no, it was a, it was an old Navy cargo plane. Yeah. But he brought it out of there, and they wouldn't let him go back. They said that was just getting too close. <laughs> but these guys, this is what I mean. The whole Chosin campaign is one of the most incredible pieces of history that's ever been written because so many things were done more or less spontaneous. We had uh, spotter pilots, guys that were flying a little plane like these folks talk, think about a, a little uh, Piper Cub, and, and they were spotters. Now, these old boys volunteered and were flying those things into Coterie and landed on what was a little road there, and they'd stuff unwounded into that little old cub and fly them out. And this was strictly spontaneous. They volunteered this. Their orders didn't call for any of this. Yeah. We had Navy pilots that were jet jockeys. Now, these boys had flown jets. They commandeered six old TBF, TBF torpedo bombers, old WW-2 torpedo bombers that were some reserve unit in Japan. They commandeered those things. These guys had never flown one of them. And they flew them up there and landed on the same roads. They even flew in a landing signal officer off a carrier to help them come in. And they'd stick seven wounded up into those old torpedo bombers. And they'd fly them out. And, and this is what I'm saying. The, the whole activity was so incredible that all these people joined together. They did what had to be done. They had the expertise. They volunteered. They did it. And well, a lot of that went on in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. And when, when something like, we call this the campaign, the Chosin campaign. Campaign signifies that some planning went into this beforehand. Uh, on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, this wasn't our boys doing the planning <laughs> this time around. You know, that reminds me, he's talking about that. Just to show you that Marines are not the only ones that are crazy. There's a couple old boys in the Airborne Unit on the, over in Japan that heard they were looking for kickers to kick the parachuted equipment out to us over there. So they got in one of these flying boxcars, but they carried their parachutes along with them. And when they got over there and kicked it out, they followed it out and joined us at Agarou. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they joined us to, to join the group to fight with us. Yeah, they, they jumped themselves. If you had a chance, would you do it again? I'd fight for my country again. Uh, I guess I would. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't know the circumstances, but you'd still do the same thing. If, if you knew if the you circumstances were... going in, would you do it again? I kind of think I would. Yeah, I my sergeant I... told me I was going to. I was more scared of him than I was of Chinese. <laughs> I, imagine he'd, I imagine he'd be glad to hear that, too. Yeah, he did. I, I really do. You know, <laughs> he didn't this, get back. I, oh, think this is, I think this is something that, that all the guys, you know, it passes through their mind. They think about it, and, you know, people ask, and I, I really believe it. I believe they would. Yeah. I, believe, I believe these old boys right now that we're getting together, that we're finding after 35, 36, 37 years, we're, we're getting together again. We're missing guys that maybe is in the foxhole with you that, that you haven't seen in all those years. And they, these guys have a, have a temperament. They, there's just something about them. And I believe they would. Yeah. I you see many a tear at these things, too. Oh, yeah. I guarantee you. Yeah, you do. I've been to a few uh, few of these reunions that have been held here for various and sundry units, and, yeah, yeah. and you're right. You do see a lot of tears there. Well, it's, it's, it's something about it that, uh, you know, that you, you can talk for 100 years, but you can really never put it all in words. It's uh, It was an experience that, uh, that you learn things about people. And as I've said before, it's not the big old Rambo types. You know, Lester Stallone or whatever his name is, you know, and all that. said, so, hey, that's not these old boys. You know, I put Something's... on a reunion here in March uh, for our company here in Austin. And one of the guys that was evacuated off the battlefield at the first part of Korea up there was shot in the spine. He's a paraplegic. 
he hadn't seen any of us. They took him. He's been in the hospital, in and out for all of his life. He came down in his wheelchair, and his wife was with him, pushing him. After the first day, he said, Honey, i got to go home. He said, This is too much. I can't handle it. And uh, she said, Oh, let's, let's stay a little longer. He was the last one to leave. <laughs> and it was a therapy that he needed. I got a letter from him the other day. He's looking forward to our next reunion. And I have a picture of him before we left Pendleton. He was the guy that carried our guide on, which is at the head of the company, a flag. Yeah, it's a big flag. About six foot tall. Now he's about three foot tall in that wheelchair. Okay, but he had the point off the guide on that our company had had, and that's what I named my little letter, my little newsletter because the Marine, the present-day Bravo Company sent me a guide on, and uh, he's gave me the point to it, and another friend gave me the staff, and now we have our guide on. All right. <laughs> you got another reunion coming up anytime soon? Yeah, we got one in July out in San Diego. Yeah. If people want to get more information, is there a phone number they can call? Just look me up in the phone book. Give me a call. Don Childs or Emmett Shelton, Jr. All right. Be glad to. We got one more phone call. Good. Let's take that real quick here. Hello, John. Hey, how you doing, Olin? Fine. I've talked to you several times. I just want to tell him uh, we were part of this uh, kicker and the boxcars, 119. Hey, Did great. you fall out? Yeah, we were the guys <laughs> took them over and put the old airplane the nose up and opened up the clamshells and kicked them out. Like I say, a lot of them like that. And uh, we worked with uh, Westmoreland there in uh, Japan, and we were the home of the people that, the, the airlift, you people, in the DOAs. Right. There in Ashia, uh, Japan. Mm-hmm. And we worked around the clock there many days. So yes. we appreciate your story here. On, as I listened to the radio, I just tuned in. All right. Well, we certainly appreciate you guys, too, I'll tell oh, you. I'll tell you what, looking up and see them old boxcars coming over with all them goodies is well worth it, friend, I guarantee you. I just wish one thing, you wouldn't drop them in the pig pen. Yeah, they they make some good drops, bad drops. But they had some wheels up problems, too, you remember? They couldn't oh, yeah. get them down. The old saying is, stuff happens. Yeah, they could always foam the runways and get them in, but uh, that was something else. Yeah. All right. We weren't down there to see that. Down. The airports they built over there, that was something else, over in uh, Korea. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, that little strip that General Smith had cut up there at uh, at uh, Hagaru is still there. Yeah. yeah. Hagaru International Airport now. Yeah, we landed lots of them. That's, okay, thank right. you. Thanks thank for you. calling. Emmett, Don, it's been, uh, been a delightful hour. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. I've learned some things. And I appreciate you guys coming down. We'll get you to come down again sometime, maybe. It'll be our pleasure anytime. All right. Take care of yourselves. Thank you. We'll see you another time.